Wait, I gotta open this first. Does that sound refreshing? It does sound refreshing. Okay, I think I'm good to go. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to House Things, a podcast and radio show from the David A. Howe Public Library right here in Wellsville, New York. I'm Nick Gunning. Today, we've got one of our favorite guests back in the hot seat, Sally Jacoby Murphy, director of the Fred and Harriet Taylor Memorial Library. Sally, what's up? You know, not much. <laughs> what's up with you? Well, I'll tell you, Sally, uh, the listeners don't know this, but you and I have spent a long time trying to get this audio to work out because, of course, we're recording remotely. We finally <laughs> did it, and now we're here. We're ready to talk to Anahisi Coates. Are you ready? I'm ready. It only took us 50 minutes. <laughs> I know, but it was 50 minutes of bonding and friendship, you know, That's... and I wouldn't trade that <laughs> for the world. <laughs> uh, well, Sally and I are on the DEI committee for the STLS Southern Library Tier System, and she and I recently co-led a book club on Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Water Dancer, and we thought, I mean, let's get it on mic. Let's talk a little about that, too. So we're going to talk about The Water Dancer, and we're going to talk about uh, some of his other works as well. So we'll dig into that a little later in the segment. But right now, Sally, I have a book that I specifically held on to to talk about with you. Are you ready? Gosh, I'm so ready. All right, let's hit it. Okay, Sally, I finished... A House at the Bottom of the Lake by Josh Mallerman. Do you know this book? I don't know this book. Do you know Josh Mallerman? No. He I? <laughs> Well, I mean, he wrote Bird Box. I've oh, seen, okay. seen Bird Box. I have not seen the movie, but I've read the book. And it's it's a good book. It's a cool book. You know, it works well. There's a sequel out, I think just called Mallory, I want to say, hmm. uh, that I haven't read that I'd like to. But House at the Bottom of the Lake, it's just very unusual, you know? And I finished it, and I was like, hmm. Now I need Sally to read this book. Basically, these two teenagers are on a first date, and they get in a rowboat that he borrows, the guy borrows from his uncle, and they go deep into the lake, and they sort of pass into like a little inlet for another part of the lake, and then they see sort of a tunnel that they go through, and they get into this sort of creepy, almost swampy part of of the lake that um, was kind of overgrown, so you wouldn't normally see it. And they look under the water, and there's just a house just like a full house and not like a you know oh the house is rotten the house was flooded it's just like a house that's underwater and they go down there and like yes it's underwater but like you know the table's sitting on the ground there's you know there's a coat rack in there nothing's like floating around and being weird it's just like a house at the bottom of a lake and it just goes on like that and you're just sort of given a little bit more information like it sort of weaves in and out of being sort of like young love and a creepy uh, romance that's happening and the draw that the house has on them and I mean I don't want to talk about the ending but it's sort of an ending that I feel like needs to be talked about so intriguing I don't know do you read a lot of spooky books you know it's funny because I, I obviously watch a lot of spooky movies Queen of Halloween yes <laughs> and I read a lot of what I would say I would say like short stories I read a lot of but I don't read a lot of novels you know this is relatively short. You could probably call it a novella, and it does have a short story feel. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it started its life. It's not that it's a particularly meaty book, but I just think the eeriness of it and just the overall weirdness of it. Hmm. And you get to the end, and you're just like, huh, okay, you know? Hmm. So I, I feel like you should read it, and then we should do like a Josh Mallerman spotlight and talk yeah. about all these weird, spooky books. I so. that's fabulous to me all right i picked this up just randomly i was you know just out living the dream you know i've got two shots in to my vaccination get your vaccination people uh and i i stopped into a barnes and noble and i just picked this off the shelf you know really based on the cover i know you're not supposed to do that but that's why i did and i read it you know probably the just two sittings it's it's short like i said and yeah it just sort of left an impact on me like hmm and i don't it's one of those ones where i i'm sort of like was that good like, is the nebulousness of it good? Or was it, like, missing something? And I kind of am leaning towards good, but I'm going to need a second opinion. Interesting. Well, yeah. I'm down. I also didn't realize, quite frankly, that Bird Box was based on a book. And so I'm kind of curious what the writing would be like that would have produced, you know, Bird Box. Yeah. I don't know if they're similar, because sometimes writers have crazy different 
styles per books but yeah i'd be interested so I'm yeah i mean it i i feel like bird box the book at least see we should save this for the mallerman spotlight that we just said we were going to do but bird box the book i think is a little bit more straightforward you know mm-hmm. i mean you have to sort of accept the premise but beyond mm-hmm. that it's a relatively straightforward novel where this i think was mm-hmm. much more like going for a tone so yeah it is it is mm-hmm. So anyway, I read that, and I read the Cassandra Cain version of Batgirl. You know, we're recording in the midst of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and so I was trying, in graphic novels and just other things that I was reading, I was trying to sort of let that be my guide. So I got back into uh, this book that I haven't read in a long time. I really like the character. I assume you're not familiar with Batgirl or this version of Batgirl. Her whole thing is that she was raised by assassins, and she doesn't speak and they never like they sort of prevented her from speaking or using speech as a way of communicating so that she could heighten all of her other like senses and instincts so she's a character who works pretty much fully on instinct so it's a it's a it's a cool take on the batgirl character and i feel like the story here was good but the art oh my gosh it was just so weird it was like a make or break kind of thing with the art and i think it broke it damien scott's the artist here is written by chuck dixon and kelly puckett mm-hmm. and it's clearly like they're going for a thing they're going for a style like it's not just like bad art it's a it's just a style that i find just very ugly and unpleasant to look at it's you know just... which i think is sort of the vibe they were going for and i think you're supposed to like turn the corner with it and i just never did so i don't yeah. know mm-hmm. But I'm currently reading Suli by John Grisham and the book club I do with my friends. We're doing Death of a Neutron Star by Eric Kotani. So that's uh, that's where I'm at right now. What about you? What Have you read anything good? Yeah, well, so I just finished Frederick Bachman's Anxious People. Mm. And honestly, I really didn't want to read it. <laughs> I, I remember, I, yeah. Yeah, I did not. I've never read anything by him. I was sort of intrigued because he's Scandinavian and I do like that kind of dry, like dark <laughs> yeah. humor. Yeah. Um, but I was really fighting it. And then I really liked it. I mean, hmm. I gave it a four out of five on Goodreads. I just like the way he set it up. And then I think it's just like a really interesting... He He's really good at making these holistic characters. And okay. so I, I thought as it went on, it just had some really interesting, funny bits. Hmm. But it was really strangely written. But I'd say it's definitely worth reading. Okay. Um, and so I finally... It took me... 13, 15 years, I don't even know, uh, to finish the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Wait, you never had finished it before? I had read the first six and a half books. So anybody who knows me personally knows I'm actually a very big Harry Potter fan, and yeah. I'm specifically a fan of the books. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't, I've only seen maybe two or three of the movies because I just didn't care for them. Um, somebody's going to hate me after that. <laughs> but the books I, I really always loved, despite my sordid relationship with J.K. Rowling, but I, uh, yeah. when I got that, and my parents always pre-ordered the books for us yeah. when we were kids and stuff. So I got that last book, and I was so excited, and I read about a halfway through it, and I was like, I don't like this. This is stupid. They're not in Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. All the stuff mm-hmm. I love about Harry Potter, the like magical world building that I think yeah. Rowling is really good at, she just sort of threw out the window, and all of a sudden now this is about like good versus evil, and it's meh. Yeah. Um, so finally, my wife is reading them, and she <laughs> she had never read them. Okay. And I was, have to finish this before she finishes you them. have to yeah so i picked it up i read the whole last book and i actually quite enjoyed it this time oh so. okay and finally this is better in my cap <laughs> this is i don't want to see if you remember this when i read this book went back when it came out uh this was in a different life when you were my student worker at the willard j houghton library <laughs> do you remember this because we, we had a very very long conversation at the front okay. desk about harry potter mm-hmm. and we sort of settled at that time. We'll see if your opinions, you know, all these years later, a decade later holds up. But I think you said that you thought she was a really good storyteller and maybe not a great writer. Oh, that I 100%. Do you still? That holds up. Okay. I remember as like a 14 or 15 year old, I think it's in the fourth book. She has this very specific line where she's trying to be poetic in her writing Mm -hmm. and like, as a 14-year-old, I was like, this is a dumb line. <laughs> <laughs> and then the New York Times did an article about it, and my dad was like, isn't that that line you were complaining about? And I was like, yes, me and the New York Times agree. You know what? I feel like this came up 10 years ago when we were having <laughs> this conversation. Do you remember the line? Oh, I don't. It's Well, it's something about Dumbledore, and he's like, he's using his little like light on-off flicker, okay. and it's 
the light glimmered in the street lamp as for one last time he swept away and turned. Mm. And I was like, I get what she's going for, but yeah. like, meh. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a pass. Just tell me he left. Well, um, my my experience, and maybe you'll remember this, but we did pre-order the book and it came and we both wanted to read it. And we ended up, I just read the whole thing aloud for both of us. You know, we'd kind of sit there and I would read a chapter or something. I don't recommend it because... <laughs> It's one thing when you're listening to like Jim Dale narrate those audiobooks masterfully. Like, yeah, the, is there anything better than those audiobooks? Honestly, the performance is perfect. But me just like looking at and saying aloud, like every word J.K. Rowling chose was <laughs> not good. And the thing was, like everybody else who read it, like a normal person at the time, we were just like, I don't know, I just wasn't very good. And they were like, oh, I cried, I wept, and we were just like, okay, so. That's on me. Should not have should not have read that book out loud. So you yeah. finally finished Deathly Hollows. Finally finished Deathly Hollows. Okay. I do think this is the last thing I'll th- say about Harry Potter, but I do think Harry Potter is going to experience a Star Wars esque revival at some point. Mm. It is incredible what has been built after just seven books. Mm. Like anything Rowling has done since then has not even made a blip on the radar. True. But like those seven books have created like an amusement park <laughs> in Orlando yeah. and just like billions of dollars worth of merchandising. But she owns all the rights and she's seemingly incapable of continuing the world. And so I think one of these days yeah. she's going to sell the rights and like fandom and spinoffs will go crazy yeah. and I will be here for it. Okay. I will read all of it. But anyway. I feel like I'm in the minority on this, but I, I can't remember the name of it now. But I, Cursed Child, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, oh. the play. I actually really liked that. Oh, did you? Did you ever read it? I didn't read it, no. I think, you know, if you're used to reading plays, you know, Mm -hmm. as we both are, I think you kind of, like, can get into the rhythm of it. And I think the story actually plays out. Like, I buy Harry Potter as turning into a terrible father. I mean, that that totally checks out for me. So, you know what, Sally? (laughs) We have it right here at the David A. Howe Public Library. You're welcome to check it out. Well, I should. Anytime. I'll send it your way. (laughs) Okay. What's on your your to-read list now? What's next? Well, so I'm in the middle of Melania and Me, which is a nonfiction about the oh, yes. Melania Trump's best friend. Oh, yes. that, I'm going to say this right now. Now that he who must not be named is no longer president. Oh, I see what you did there. I can yeah. stomach reading about yeah. all the craziness. So I'm in the middle of that. And I am in the middle of The Giver, which I read. I have read before, but we're doing it for a book club. So okay. I'm rereading it. And so far, really liking it. Okay. And I need to finish the last in the March trilogy. That's on my list. Oh, okay. Yeah. That one gets a little thick. Does it? It feels a little long. (laughs) I flew through the first two. um, But I haven't uh, read the third one yet. Yeah. That's that's when I feel like if we were talking about a fourth (laughs) or fifth, you know, I think they wanted to make it a neat trilogy. But the last one gets real heavy. To me, it kind of forgets that it's a graphic novel sometimes, and it's just sort of like, and this, and this, and this, and this. We'll see what you think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so those are my big ones. Okay. Um, yeah. Watching anything good? So right now, I am in a cult documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm currently watching the new Son of Sam documentary on Netflix. Okay. I watched the Holy Hell documentary before that, and this whole thing spun out because there's a cult leader that died this week. (laughs) Um, Okay. And so I've sort of been following her cult. Yeah, well, it's nice to have a hobby. (laughs) Yeah, and so so I was shocked that she died, and then I was, like, trying to watch all the YouTube videos I could about that. There's no, like, real documentary about it. And then here I am watching the Son of Sam documentary and learning a lot about New York in the 70s. Wow. (laughs) Great. Yeah. In a weird coincidence, my wife and I have been watching the Leah Remini Scientology documentary on Netflix. Yeah. Well, it was originally an A&E thing, but it's on Netflix now. And I've never seen it before, but yeah, it is interesting. Does she interview people in that, or is it more straight documentary about the... No, it's she's interviewing people who got out, people who okay. still have family in and everything. It's, um, you know, it definitely feels like a TV show that was on A&E like five years ago, but the it's it's very watchable and interesting and it's just, it's a fascinating story. So we're not that deep into it yet, but definitely intrigued. Yeah, so. I think I've told you this, but I, I, I read her book when it came out. Okay, um, yeah. Many years ago, but 
Hmm. It's an interesting story. I mean, I really, I never watched King of Queens. I didn't either, so, no. So I don't really know anything about her, but her story is very interesting. And she's actually a pretty decent writer. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you know, watching the watching the documentary did kind of make me want to read that book. So yeah. coincidentally, I have read Battlefield Earth back on the All the Book Show. Uh, I read the entire book and we did a deep dive into everything. And it is an insane book. Interesting. It's, it's fully insane. So... <laughs> I mean, I will admit that I've gone most of my life without knowing many of the details of Scientology, but then, man, it's just, I mean, I hope there are no Scientologists, well, no, if there are Scientologists listening to this, just take a step back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sound advice, sound advice. (laughs) All right, Uh, we, you know, we recently, we have Apple TV uh, for a while here, so we've been watching Ted Lasso. And we just finished a show called Truth Be Told with Octavia Spencer. She plays like a true crime podcaster whose big splashy podcast was a big factor in this kid getting arrested for a murder. And then a decade or so later, some new evidence comes out and it kind of seems like maybe he was innocent. So she's kind of struggling with her own guilt and decides she's going to use a podcast to kind of try to get the case reopened and see if she can figure out what really happened. And it's sort of... One of those things where it's kind of almost more for her, like to soothe her own guilt, but then it just gets rabbit holes start opening up and things get crazy. So uh, we watched the whole first season. I think there's a second season coming out, and uh, it was good. I liked it. Nice. So, what yeah. is it on? It's on Apple. Apple. Maybe? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a list. We got a list of things we're getting through. I'm still loving Kim's Convenience. I'm so glad that like I wasn't up to date on it because I've had I think only four seasons are on Netflix now I think the fifth one is the last but I just like every time I get a chance to just like oh I've got 20 minutes you know it's like that's my go-to and I love it if you haven't watched it it's so fun so funny I've seen a few episodes and it's great yeah it really is I actually think that that one might be one that my wife and I could watch together it's hard to find shows that she will love that I love oh she's a problem is that what you're saying yeah. Okay. We are right. watching Shit's Creek right now though and yeah. I love Shit's Creek. It's Agreed. Yeah. So I've been watching Kim's Convenience alone, but my wife and I are watching Shit's Creek and yes, it oh. is. I mean, it's just comedy gold. Yeah. You know? It is. And it's just like it kind of hit me like near the end when I started like crying at every episode, but it's just like so amazing to me that they managed to build this world yeah. free of like sexism and homophobia. True. Yeah. It just and you know it's like it's surprisingly heartwarming like you hear the premise and you assume exactly what the show's going to be and it's just not that at all you know yeah. it's it's uh yeah it is it's pretty unique it's pretty unique it's, it's like the same premise of arrested development but like the <laughs> yeah i suppose that is yeah that is true <laughs> sally yeah. guess what we have both schitt's creek and arrested development on dvd here at the david a Howe public library no, no. Oh, i think gosh. we also have them at the hammondsport library so we can fight okay over all right all right well <laughs> it's it's my show so please control yourself um talk about a glow down though arrested development those final seasons oh yeah, Woof. I mean, I admit I still enjoyed them, but it w- I enjoyed them as though I would enjoy any basic primetime sitcom, mm. and, like, the original Arrested Development are just, I mean, that's one of the best shows ever written. Oh, sure. I don't think there is a show that is tighter than the first three seasons of Arrested Development. Yeah. Like, the jokes, the callbacks, the follow-through is just, it's unparalleled. I really, I really believe that. I know, it feels almost like they have to be time travelers for how many jokes they make. <laughs> oh, sure. To I know. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd. It really is. But. Yep. No complaints. No complaints on those first three seasons. All right. Uh, shall we get into some book news? Yes. Look into the future to see what it proves. It's time for book news. You forgot we were doing a podcast for a minute there, didn't you? <laughs> I did. But here we are. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get to the New York Times bestseller list, I wanted to let everybody know that the Women's Prize for Fiction 2021 has announced their shortlist. So here we go. Here are some books to keep an eye on. The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. If I if I were a betting man, I would say The Vanishing Half is going to win because gotcha. it's one of those few that I think has had crossover. It's both like critically acclaimed and very popular. Like everyone's yeah. done this for a book club, Agreed. including well, the David A. Howe Public Library. <laughs> And the Hammondsport Library, the okay. Fred and Harry Taylor Memorial, will be Again, doing it please. in two months. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you'll have to let me know what you think. But <laughs> The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. Transcendent Kingdom by Yaga Sai. 
How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Cherie Jones, and No One is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood. You can find uh, the, the long list, the short list, uh, and the winner, which is a few months away here, at womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. I always like to watch this one. They always, they always pull some interesting things here. So that is the Women's Prize for Fiction. Let's look at some New York Times bestsellers. Sally, would you do the honors? I would love to. All right. We're going to be looking at combined print and ebook fiction for May 16th, 2021. That's right. So number 10 is The Sentinel by Lee Child and Andrew Child. And that has been 10 weeks on the list. Mm. Then number nine, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Sally, wait, before you go too far, do you know what The Sentinel by Lee Child is? No. It's a Jack Reacher novel, Sally. We have a shared history with Jack Reacher. Do you remember this? How could I forget? (laughs) It was my 30th birthday, and we all went to see, what is it called? Just Jack Reacher, just called Jack Reacher. Uh, Yeah, with Tom Cruise, and not Sally's kind of movie, but she was there in solidarity and friendship. And we sat through Jack Reacher together, and I thought it was just okay. And it, it took a lot from Sally. It shaved years off her life. It did. I have never wanted to walk out of a movie yeah. this much in my life. And I didn't because I love you. Thank and you. And it was your birthday. Thank you. Do you want to hear <laughs> something crazy, though? That was eight years ago. That is, I w- when you said your 30th birthday, I was like, what? Well, I'm 32 now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're older than me. Yeah, so. I am. Yeah. You're almost 40. <laughs> I have come close. I really am. Yeah. This is interesting, though, because these Lee Child books, the Jack Reachers, they are still super popular. And yep. it kind of seems like Lee Child was like, I don't want to do this anymore, but Papa loves his checks. And so <laughs> he kind of passed it off to his brother. Andrew Child is Lee Child's oh, brother. And so Andrew Child has kind of taken over the series. And I would assume, I would mm-hmm. say Andrew Child is probably writing these solo. But you got that Lee, Lee Child uh, byline there to, uh, to move some books. Yeah, but this I mean, time, Jack Reacher is going to intervene on an ambush in Tennessee and uncover a conspiracy. So that sounds fun. Does it? <laughs> no, not really. It doesn't. But sorry, you were saying the Midnight Library? What's Midnight that What's library. that one about? Hit me. Nora Seed finds a library beyond the edge of the universe that contains books with multiple possibilities of the lives one could have lived. This is one of those books that I feel like was solely written for librarians and people who buy books for libraries. You know, like, well, it's got library in the title. What am I going to do? Not buy it? <laughs> That's true. What is the Macaulay Culkin movie from the 80s or 90s? I think it would have to be the 90s. The Page Master. The Page Master, yes. Yeah. That's all I can think of. When mm-hmm. I... <laughs> mm-hmm. I was not allowed to watch The Page Master as a child. Uh, probably because of magic. I don't know. I, I, I didn't make the rules. Uh, but I, of course, like as an adult, I never went back and watched The Page Master. So I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, I loved it as a kid, but I have not watched it since I was a kid. Got so it. Okay. Maybe that could be a movie night sometime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this this book actually sounds kind of interesting to me. Well, okay. and I'm you know a library director. I so. know you are, yeah. <laughs> but that is 22 weeks on the list. Okay. Uh, next at number eight is Ocean Prey by John Sanford. Oh. Three weeks on the list. Oh, I new. see. Yeah, relatively new. Sanford, uh, John Sanford, David Baldacci, and The Women's Murder Club by James Patterson. Those are the big three here at the David A. Howe Public Library. The Lucas Davenport series, which is what the Prey series is, a little too violent for me. These are yeah. these are like about disturbing serial killers that, uh, yes, I, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't say. You would watch a documentary about these characters. But this is a team-up. This is a team-up book between mm. Lucas Davenport and Virgil Flowers, which is like the other big John Sanford series. So mm. I know they sort of cross paths now and then, but I don't remember them having like a straight-up team-up like this. Maybe I'm mm. wrong, but still. I'm sure that'll be popular. Interesting. I mean, I've never read anything by any of them, but now mm. that I know that there are serial killers involved, yeah. I will. We did one for a book club, and it was everybody was kind of like, oh, maybe not again. So. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, number seven is your favorite book of all time. Hit me. <laughs> Where the Crawdads Sing. 128 weeks. Boy. 128 oh, weeks. Oh, my gosh. My gosh. That's a long time. Yeah, that's people, more than two years. <laughs> people could hug their friends when that book had been on the list for a hundred weeks. <laughs> that's true. So, oh, you know, that book's going to outlive us all. <laughs> Truly. Next, number six is The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. 
13 weeks on the list. This is very popular at our library. Yeah. I don't know if it's yours, but... I mean, Kristen Hanna, back... I mean, she's always been popular, Firefly Lane and all that, which I think is on Netflix now, but... Well, Everything changed with the Nightingale, you know, and then all the books that have come after that, the um, the Great Alone, which I bought your wife for Christmas one yeah. year. Oh, she loved it. And yeah. the Four Winds, yeah, still popular. Yeah, this is also on our book club list, although I'm sure it's on a lot of people's book club list, yeah. right? Then number five, I'm excited to see this, mm. uh, The We Climb by Amanda Gorman. Yeah. Five weeks on the list. She definitely deserves it, and I am stoked to read this after the inauguration. Absolutely. And this this was smart of them to do, because I was just at my house when the inauguration mm-hmm. happened. She read that poem, and I was like, oh, people are going to want her poetry now. Nothing. Nothing is available. I went to like buy a book, and they were like, she doesn't have a book, bro. And I was like, what? And so... I knew she had like a children's book coming out, but this was smart. I I mean, the presses must have started pumping out that very day because I don't think this was planned prior that they would release it this way. Yeah. I I also pre-ordered her children's book as soon as I was done watching the inauguration. Yep. Everybody did. Yeah. (laughs) True. Um, So number four is Fugitive Telemetry. (laughs) Mm. Telemetry. Telemetry, thank you, thank you. Yeah. No, I stupid on this podcast. No, you don't. By Martha Wells. Yeah. And so, that's this week. Yeah, so this is the sixth book in her Murderbot series. Longtime listeners will remember that we had Martha Wells on the show to talk oh. specifically about the Murderbot books. And the main character is a, a Murderbot. And, you know, it's a robot. And Eric and I were interviewing her. And we realized over the course of the interview that... Like the, it's a robot, and but the gender is never. They don't. They don't refer to them. They just refer to it as a robot. But I read it thinking it was a woman, and Eric read it thinking it was a man. Well, and like a- in the course of that interview, we were like, "Wait, is that? Is she? Is he? You know?" So it's just kind of an interesting thing to work out that like the author never expressly said, and we both huh. read it completely differently. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, Murderbot's got a real bad attitude, so that's kind of fun in that series. <laughs> Yeah. She also wrote a Leia-centric Star Wars book that's pretty fun. Oh, wait. Is that the one that you got me? Or No, it- that's Claudia Gray, just Leia. This one, I don't remember what it's called. Way to make me look stupid on the podcast. <laughs> now we both had a moment. I know, you're right. I did I read it. <laughs> well, I love anything Leia, so. Okay. All right, number three, The Gambling Man by David Baldacci. Yeah. Two weeks on the list. Um, I've never read a Baldacci, but he's always popping around these lists, I feel like. Last week, Amanda was talking about reading, uh, she's reading, she's currently reading a Baldacci series. I don't think it's this one. I've read one of the King and Maxwell books, and I've tried a couple others, and I just hate the writing. Mm. And it's weird, because it is so popular here, and so I've tried multiple times, and it's just like, I don't know. It To me, and like, I'm going to get roasted for this, but like, it is, they're sort of like, you know, they're thrillers or whatever, but mm. I find it very, like, flowery. It's like purple prose mm. in these things, and I don't really... It's a weird juxtaposition that I don't get, but... Hmm. Well, maybe one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so number two, Daniel Steele, Finding Ashley. Mm. That's new this week. Yeah. Uh, and then number one, Suli by John Grisham. You said you're reading that, right? I'm currently reading it right now. Yeah, I was I was excited about this book. We were talking a little bit about it last week. And it's uh, I've just got to a pretty heavy part. I mean, right here in the synopsis, you can see Samuel Suleiman receives a basketball scholarship to North Carolina Central and determines to bring his family over from a civil war ravaged South Sudan. It's a heavy book. It really is because they're, you know, they're drafting players over there. And while Suli is just sort of like off with a team working, there's a horrible like bloodbath civil war in his hometown. And he's sort of like, he can't go back there, but he's like desperate to help his family. And he realizes like the best thing to do is like go on with his plans. So he has like money and a home base so he can actually help them. And so it's like, it's a basketball book, you know, but it's, it's like, it's super heavy. So it's interesting. It's very atypical for Grish. Even it's even atypical for his sort of off the rails books, like playing for pizza or something like that, because it's usually these ones that are, that are a little off the beaten path are more fun. I mean, playing for pizza is just about a guy playing football in Italy once he washes out of the NFL. And this one really has this secondary layer that's like, oh my gosh. So yeah, interesting. It's interesting 
how John Grisham manages to like keep going and the safe money would just be like, keep churning out lawyer books, man, yeah. you know, but he just keeps doing different things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but I think it's cool that he's doing unusual things. So, yeah. I mean, good for him too. I, I feel like there's always that question when like a white author writes a black yeah. man, yeah. but I also think for somebody as high profile as him to be writing about like the South Sudan, yeah. you know, upheaval and stuff is like, that's going to be good for just awareness for people who yeah. are fans of his. So yeah. That's I know what you mean. I mean, that is I mean, American dirt, I think is a perfect example where that yeah. conversation comes up. Like, is this really appropriate? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's true. I mean, this is, this is a very high profile kind of book that's, that's looking mm -hmm. at something that, you know, probably the person who, the average person who would go pick up a Grisham book is not going to go pick up a book about, the Sudan. Right. Maybe they would. I don't know. But I would say, you know, you're, you're definitely casting a wider net here with, with this kind yeah. of topic. So. Agreed. All right, Sal, so you ready for our main topic here? I am. Let's do it. All right, so the book club that we were doing this time around for the, for the system-wide book club was The Water Dancer, which is Ta-Nehisi Coates' first novel first full-length novel uh, i'm wondering where did you first hear that name where what was the first thing by him that you read how did he sort of come into your orbit he came into my orbit um when i so i came from higher education to library work mm -hmm. and so in higher education there's a lot of conversation um around race and equity oh sure and, yeah um and so i spent a good deal of my time doing a lot of like equity inclusion stuff um not specifically with race, but in the umbrella that was talked about a lot. And he's a name that comes up a lot because of he's primarily an essayist. Yeah, yeah. And so he is talking about a lot of the stuff that we want to be talking about. And so one of the articles that we spent a lot of time um, discussing a couple of years ago, well, quite a few years ago at this point, was his Case for Reparations article that came out in The Atlantic. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because that conversation, you know, it's sort of cyclical. It comes up every, like, 10 yeah. years, like, what do we do with reparations? And I thought that was a phenomenal piece. So that was the first time that he crossed my path. But then, obviously, his a lot of his nonfiction works have been really popular. Yeah. And so I had not read any of them before this, but I did read Between the World and Me as well. So Okay. What about yeah. you? Well, you know, I think it was just from working in libraries was I familiar with the name. Probably first because of Between the World and Me, though that's not the first thing I read by him. But I certainly remember that one coming out, and I remember him just being a big part of a lot of those conversations. You know, mm. um, the first thing I actually read by him was when he started writing for Marvel Comics. He did a long run on the Black Panther title. Well, the first volume of that's called A Nation Under Our Feet, which we have right here in the collection. But he's also uh, written a run of Captain America, and he's currently writing uh, the Superman movie, like a new Superman movie that's coming oh, out. So yeah, kind of kind of a, an eclectic background here for Ta-Nehisi Coates. But yeah, I read the Black Panther stuff, and that was my first. I think I I think I read that prior to seeing the movie, and at that point, I hadn't really even read the old like Jack Kirby or the, the you know the Stan Lee stuff from even earlier than that. And so it was kind of my introduction to both Black Panther and Ta-Nehisi Coates. So I read that, but then I didn't read another one until we did The Water Dancer for the mm. book club. And right after that, I got my hands on Between the World and Me and just kind of pounded through it because I, it's weird, you know, it's weird. I've, I had sort of a mixed response to the book, The Water Dancer, where I was really appreciative of his language. And in fact, you're going to hear me say this to Tess Gerritsen in our next episode because I've created a continuity error by the way that these episodes are coming out. So next week, I'm going to tell Tess Gerritsen that I really enjoyed the writing and I was less into the story, which is kind of unusual. Did you find that or what was your experience like reading Water Dancer? No, I would agree with that. I was mesmerized by his writing. Yeah. It is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think you see, having now read Between the World and Me too, you definitely see like similarities in the writing, yeah. although the nonfiction is a lot more poetic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I loved the writing, but the plot, um, <laughs> it just gets bogged down. It does. Um, so yeah. I think I mentioned this to you before, but I compared it to like a Dickens novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Dickens' writing is beautiful, but they're just long. Yeah. <laughs> and this has that same feeling of like, man, this is just long. Yeah. And the basic story of this is that, you know, we're following a character named Hiram who is, is you know, working on a big farm and his father is the, you know, the head of this farm and his brother uh, he's he's with. And that there these relationships are kind of, come out in the course of the story like they're not what you expect them to be which was i know that was something that you really responded to you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i thought it was really clever of him and i'm sure he did it on purpose but like he opens the book just by using familial terms like my brother in the water or like my father and then it sort of hits you about a chapter in Mm -hmm. where you're like oh his brother is white this is his half brother because his father is the plantation owner, right. the slave owner. Right. Um, and I just thought that was a really clever way to do it because it kind of catches, especially as a white person, yeah. reading, like it kind of catches you in your own assumptions mm-hmm. what the setup of the book is going to be. Yeah. And it works because yeah. like, you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, this would have been the reality of this person. Yeah. And really horrifying, but also really fascinating to like yeah. think, yeah. Well, that's so. the thing. It, it is. It's really clever because it does. It offsets those expectations, and it and it, you start off balance. You know, mm-hmm. when when that kind of comes out and you figure it out. Um, I think you know the consensus in the book club. I think this was pretty universal. Was that, you know, it it could have it could have done with some paring down. You know, if the book was significantly shorter, it would have accomplished a lot of the same goals, and maybe been a more dynamic read. But mm-hmm. a lot of the things that he manages to do within the novel really stand out from some of the other slave narratives. I use the the example of The Kitchen House by Kathleen Grissom quite a lot. And that's one that tends to fall back on just the stereotypes. You know, the mm-hmm. you know, there there was the good slave owners and then there was like the really hard evil ones and there were you know, just this whole thing. It relied pretty heavily on how horrible this is and you got a lot of sort of gratuitous scenes of violence and things. And the water dancer doesn't avoid those conversations but it just approaches them in a different way you don't get those the the graphic violence or anything like that because it's just sort of assumed you know and he just sort of narrows in on the plot and the characters and their own experience which is unusual and interesting yeah no i agree i i like that approach because again i feel like he's coming at it from this like I don't need to convince you that slavery was an atrocity right yeah Yeah. like if you if you're in a place where you feel the need to be convinced that just owning another person is a problem like it doesn't matter how well they were treated or how just egregious they were treated like slavery is bad yeah if you haven't figured that out already like this book is not going to be like for you Mm -hmm. and i like that because he's writing to the next level like he's writing to people who already know that and now they want to like delve into this particular person's story yeah and so i thought that was a really like interest it shouldn't be groundbreaking but it like it kind of is yeah no it's true anything like that so one thing that was tripping up some of the members in the book club and you know i bumped up against this a little bit too was that i felt like the magical realism in it where he has this sort of teleportation ability is not really explored until the very end of the story and Mm -hmm. i think the feeling was and i would certainly agree with this is that it it's it's underdeveloped in a way that I don't think it ends up adding a ton to the story. And I'm curious, like, why? I would be interested to know why he added that element to it, what that what difference that brought to it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I had a similar feeling. I mean, I, I think I've, like, I've given thought to yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I have too. On these, like, existential planes, I think I understand what he was trying to do with it, yeah. you know? On the one hand, it's like that's the thing that like a person who is enslaved would always dream of. True. And so to give somebody who has no power that magical power is like a really interesting thought. Yeah. And then also just like on a more sort of like heady theoretical or like existential level, just like that slavery is the thing, like this his mother being ripped from him is this thing yeah. that him back um which kind of goes i mean his essay the case for reparations which is basically like you have and i i agree with this i'll get that out of the way but like you when you take a people and you 
disenfranchise them for hundreds of years, yeah. you never give them the chance to like realize their full potential, exactly. which is what this character is, is he's been stunted by like this thing that has been done to him and yeah. his mother. So I like those, but I think I almost would prefer it if it was just this like interesting profound sort of viewpoint from like Hiram and like I, I don't really think I need the magical realism. I agree. And I, yeah. It's just yeah. I didn't know well, yeah, I went into this like not knowing what mm. this book was about. Um and so it really caught me off guard and I had to like pause and Google because I was confused. Was, like, <laughs> little, yeah. But it was there and yeah. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, I yeah, not my fave. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the thing with his mom, and in the book, his mother represents such a crucial part of his background because he can't really remember her, but she's also this thing that I don't know. It's, it both sort of haunts him and grounds him, and his inability to really like come to terms with what happened to her is a thing that holds him back. It holds him back from unlocking his power, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is also really like clearly metaphorical because there's a lot of work here that's that's all about just this process of dehumanizing people, right? I mean, disconnecting them from their roots and traditions and taking away any sort of sense of self makes it so that the, you can't really take that next step. And I think that's something that this, this memory loss and this connection with his mother um, preventing him from taking this very literal next step uh, stands in for that really well. And so that was a part of the book that I did find really intriguing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, and I think, again, it highlights, like, by making this juxtaposition between his, like, white father and his mother, who is black and who has been enslaved. Yeah. And she is, like, this missing portion. Mm -hmm. It it feel like he is very much, like, on his own. Yeah. Like, everything that is, that it should be natural to him has been, like, torn from him. And then he's been transplanted into the most unnatural places, which is to be, like, a slave on the plantation run by your own father. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I landed with Water Dancer on it was a it was a book that I much more preferred the discussion afterwards than the reading process, you know. And that happens a lot with the library book clubs when you know I'll, I'll find something and and I'll read it just on my own and I'll be like mm, yeah okay and then we'll sit down to discuss it and I'll realize that I have tons and tons of stuff to say about it, you know, like it brought up a lot of things in my head, you know, and things to think about. And that was definitely one with this, where I felt like I just kept adding a star to the rating the more we talked about it. So I think it's one of those ones where, like, read it, but know that it's going to require a little bit of work to sort of, like, really explore the themes, like, in your head, not your own, or with a book club at a library, you know, (laughs) somewhere like there. (laughs) No, I agree. Well, and I think, like, I still stand by and I think you probably would agree with me, but like I still stand by the fact that this could have been half the length. Easily. Easily. Uh, yeah. And even when you look at like his nonfiction, which is his thing, like yeah. he does this, it's only this is only hundred and fifty between the world and me, it's only yeah. hundred and fifty pages long. This is four hundred I know. Pages. And you feel it. And that is a leap. Um but I still think like he has a future in nonfiction. Mm. And as his first novel, it's still very impressive. And yeah. I think are yeah like these really important interesting themes that come out particularly like that he is a black man in this time writing um a slave narrative yeah so yeah well you mentioned in between the world and me so let's uh let's talk about that a little bit um so i read that afterwards because again i you know the writing intrigued me and i wanted to kind of visit revisit the thing that he's maybe more well known for I found Between the World and Me very profound and, and very moving. You know, it's yeah. it's written as, you know, from a father to a son. And, you know, it really digs in deep to, you know, the, the expectations and the perils, I think, of growing up as a black man, you know, mm-hmm. and some of the conversations that you have to have. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of hard to, you know, as just like a white guy with a white son, you know, there are things that, I'm likely not going to have to think about in conversations that I'm definitely not going to have to have. And that experience is just so different. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, parents and children's fathers and sons, that doesn't change. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, while I can't understand that, I understand the anguish of having to have that be a part of your reality, I guess, you know, or at least I can try to understand that. And that's something that I think between the world and me really drove home for me just as a parent that like, 
you know, I, I maybe I just can't really imagine, you know, what that mm-hmm. would that would be like. Yeah, I know. Well, like, yeah, we're two white people talking about this. We sure are, Sally. <laughs> we're two really white people. Uh, but I do think that it is, like, it drives home this point, too, that, like, this is a community, this is a conversation that has been going on in black and African-American communities forever. Yeah. Like, we as white people, like, some of us have been in the know or, like, cared to know about it, Um but especially recently, like, this has become a larger cultural conversation. And so to pick up a book like this, where he's like, this is the conversation my father had with me yeah. and my father had with him. And this is just a thing that we have to deal with and, like, an anguish that we have to, like, work through and a conversation we have to have. It is, it's just horrifying yeah. as, you know, to think about having to do that. I don't have kids. <laughs> so it's interesting that you have like a unique perspective as a father with a son mm-hmm. reading this. But I would say too, I mean, it, it pains me to think that any of my friends who are black would ever have to have this conversation and they just will. Yeah. Like, Well, you said a few minutes ago, you were saying about how, you know, for a long time, it was maybe just people who were in the know or who cared to know you know, would, would maybe be aware that this was something. But I think, you know, to go a step further there, I think the fact that so many of us have the option to not care and to not know, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, when you talk about privilege, like that's certainly a privilege that I have to not have to have that thought, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's still challenging, I think, you know, to read it from my perspective because it makes me want to change that, you know what I mean? And it's just such a... It's so hard to know, you know, I think that's why we try the things that we try and try to contribute in in ways we can and just sort of knowing that it's never going to be enough until, you know, there's a top down change that we all hope and and pray and work towards. Yeah, yeah. And who, it seems so overwhelming to think like, what would that change look like that would actually no longer have to be a conversation? But at the same time, it just like it need like whatever it is, we just got to keep moving in that right. direction because even though every day it's so exhausting, it's like yeah, it's exhausting, but I can tap out and yeah. I need to not tap out. Yeah. Whereas you know, if you're black in America, you can't ever tap out. Yeah. And well, and there's a there's a little section to go back to the water dancer for a minute that we you know you and I discussed off mic, but where he sort of is calling out empty social justice warriors and you know i think that is that is an important reminder you know that 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 certainly can happen it's something you want to be mindful of but it's a pretty blistering uh (laughs) takedown i feel like sort of in the guise of fiction but a pretty pretty obvious as as you read it you know i know that was that was actually one of my favorite lines in the water dancer i kind of i have it marked here but he's talking about um the white people that um that are basically abolitionists, and he said, their opposition was a kind of vanity, a hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. Yep. And I feel like that, I mean, that hits me pretty hard mm-hmm. because I'm somebody who would consider myself like somebody who's a social justice advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so easy to just like post the black square or yep. like, do the hashtag and not actually like call out the racism when it happens on the street. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's white and pretends that you've never been at like a family reunion or a friend's <laughs> gathering and somebody has said something inappropriate, you'd be lying. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I come from a pretty liberal family um, and a pretty like quote unquote woke family. <laughs> like, shit happens all the time because because yeah. <laughs> because racism is a system in our society. Yep. So I think sure. that line is like very, you know, it's it's very what's the word? Moving, jarring, mm-hmm. in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> Calling me out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean all the things I've read, you know, I know we had some criticism of Water Dancer, but it didn't like my reaction to reading Water Dancer was not I don't ever want to read Donahisi Coates books again it, it was to go and find between the world and me and read it you know mm-hmm. and you know I kind of felt that way about everything I've read even the Black Panther mm-hmm. story I mean the the there's multiple volumes of this and the first big hardcover volume is very unusual for uh you know what whatever a superhero kind of story because it is really more a meditation about like that society and and you know the, their interactions it's, it's really 
it's kind of not a superhero book. It is more just like, a, you know, a look at this culture. It just sort of becomes a, you know, because Wakanda is sort of is is made to be, you know, in the movies and the comics is this like exceptionally evolved place, you know, with like big thinkers and big thoughts. And, you know, that's really that's really, I think, what that book becomes sort of a meditation on that concept. So it's jarring, I think, if you're expecting like a, you know, a Black Panther action romp, because it's not that, you know, but I think you can, you can tell that they're written by the same person. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's not like he like shuts off the Ta-Nehisi Coates of it all to go and write a comic mm-hmm. book. Like it's, it's in there as well. And the way it comes out is kind of compelling and, and unique, it, but it is sort of a surprise if you're expecting just a, you know, a superhero mm-hmm. adventure. So I, I have sounds like one I would love. You might. I tend not to like the action, but I tend to like the stuff behind the action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would like to read more of his nonfiction. Yeah. The end. yeah. Um, and I do think if you are somebody who is interested in sort of dipping your toe into like these conversations of what's happening mm. in America right now and these conversations about Black Lives Matter and stuff, I think I was surprised at how accessible his writing is and particularly from an emotional standpoint yeah you were saying you know you relate to it as like a father who has a son and i think that that's really helpful mm-hmm. i think for some people they just really need this to be talked about with beautiful writing yeah and this sort of emotional essay sort of style yeah so i i was surprised to say because the case for reparations, the article, which I did, I printed to reread for this. It is very long. Oh, wow. It originally was in the Atlantic. This is very analytical, mm. um, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but most people, or not most people, but a lot of people are not going to like that. Yeah. But this is, I think, very accessible from an emotional standpoint. So That's I true. Yeah, I would second that because you're right. I think, you know, when you pick up a book like that, you know, it's going to be a challenging book. Uh, and it is. It certainly is. Between the World and Me does that. But you're right. It, it is it is approachable in a way that I think, uh, yeah, I would agree that that would be kind of a good a good one to start with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. any and all of these are available right here in our library system. So whether you live in Hammondsport or Wellsville, stop into your local library and check out some Ta-Nehisi Coates. Woohoo! Sally, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Are you going to read some Josh Mallerman so we can talk spooky books sometime? Oh, definitely. Okay, you're in. You're locked in. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of How's Things. You can join us next time when I have a sit-down interview with Tess Gerritsen about her Rizzoli and Isles book and her new book, Choose Me. And we focus on one of her older books, Gravity, which was one of our book clubs recently. Really interesting story behind that book. So it was a fascinating conversation, as always, with Tess Gerritsen. So tune in for that. That's going to do it this time. Sally, so long. Bye. Bye. Bye.